Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 11. Let's read together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises everyone whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, <coughs> and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of the spirits and live? For they disciplined us. For a short time, as seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So, we come to this passage... In uh, chapter 12, having looked at the hall of faith, having heard for 10 chapters prior to that, that uh, having heard for 10 chapters prior to that, that uh, Jesus is better. Having had God lay out over and over and over, Jesus is better than this, Jesus is better than that, and then you get to this uh, list of people and it says they look forward to something greater. And they had their eyes on this goal that was greater and further away. This, was, uh, this is where we come in this passage. Now, now we get to the point in the book when God challenges what we have believed and have read and have heard to ask us, essentially, do you really believe Jesus is better? That would be the question that I would, I would ask you to ponder before you read all of chapter 12 and 13. Do you really believe what you have read in chapters 1 through 11? 
Do you really believe it? Because this is where the application begins. It's always fun to teach these last chapters in Hebrew because I could essentially read them, close the book, and walk away, and you would still hear the application. It's enjoyable because it's so straightforward. At this point, he begins to tell us, stop sinning. He begins to tell us to put your mind in the right place. He begins to tell us, run the race with endurance. So he starts making these statements about us actively living out what we have read in chapters 1 through 11. Does this matter? Indeed, in church history and in Christian history, you will find when the scripture matters and affects the lives of Christians, Christians change the world. But when the scripture does not matter as it plays an effect in daily lives of Christians, you hear things like everyone at church is a hypocrite. You hear things like all they want to do is make a club or all they want to do is entertain. Those monikers are rightly deserved by a church that does not pay attention that does not live out what it reads. Those descriptions are rightly deserved. But let us strive to not be that type. To not be that way here. That when people see people who attend and come to Sovereign Grace, that they would then see people who live out what faith really is. That they would say, those people are weird. And we would say, yes, yes, we are. So, let's dive right in. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, <clears throat> there's a sense in which you could say that um, you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses as far as the faith is concerned. There are more Christians around you. You could say that, but that's not what the author of Hebrews is getting at. What he is getting at is because we have this great historical cloud of witnesses behind us and their testimony has existed around us. So, so the idea is that these people have died in faith and their testimony continues. So they have passed away and their testimony keeps going. Their witness continues long after they're dead. And so the author of Hebrews goes, since we have these people testifying to God, even now from the dead, then we ought to do these things. So I want you to imagine yourself walking a, a path. You need to imagine yourself walking a path, maybe running down a, a charted path that's been laid out before you, and you can only see so far in front of it. You can only see so far in front of you before the path bends or turns, or before some trees obscure your view or something, and you're, you're running along this path. And you've been told when you reach the end of the path, there will be prize, reward. 
You've been told that when you reach the end, there will be a reward. But you're not told where the path goes or how the path moves or what's going to be in your way or if you're going to have to have a rope to climb with or whatnot. But instead, you're told, run this path. And as you run the path, there are uh, little markers of where people have gone that path before. And little notes say things like, use the rope when you get to the hill. And you're running along the path and you come to a hill and you go, oh, and you see a rope tied on the ground that leads up the hill. You pick up the rope and you use the rope as you climb the hill. You continue running and there's another little marker signed by Enoch. Use the walking stick down the, down the path and you come to this rocky path and you look around and there, lo and behold, is a walking stick off to the side and you take the walking stick and you walk down the path. You don't know what's coming, but there's a lot of people who have come before you, who have run the same path, who have gotten the reward, who have gone this distance. Likewise, the author of Hebrews is telling us, look, since we have this great cloud of witnesses who have come before us, who have laid out this path, who have figured out that sometimes climbing up a hill is done best when you can hold on to something. That, that sometimes there's a particular way to walk something. Since we have this great cloud of witnesses who have gone the path before us, and we know that they have received reward, that they've gone to the end, and we know that they were part of the plan, because we have these markers in front of us, let us run this race. Let us run this race. That's what the author of Hebrews is getting at here, is that you have people who have gone before you who have done this. And their testimony still is present among you. You can still look back on their testimony. This is part of the value of the Old Testament. That we look back and we see it through Jesus-colored glasses. You, you read the Bible, by the way, as a Christian. We read the Bible through Jesus-colored glasses. So everything shows Jesus to us. So we look back on this Old Testament narrative and we see it through Jesus-colored lenses and we see where Abraham had to have faith and step a certain way and where Enoch walked with God and was no more and we see where Moses went straight, uh, where he obeyed the Lord and went back to Egypt <coughs> where he carries the staff of God. We see these things. We read about them. We read about the judges. We read about the prophets. And we understand that people have walked this path before us. And for us, it means that we have somebody that we can look to, markers on the path that show us how to walk it. So we lay out the path before us. And we walk the path with this great cloud of witnesses. So that's one sense in which this great cloud of witnesses is with us. There's another sense as well, and we see it in the book of Revelation, and we see it in the book of Isaiah, and we see it in the book of Ezekiel and Daniel, that there's this throne room filled with people who are praying and pleading for Jesus to return. That the saints of old stand before God right now saying, when will you return? And they are cheering on, by doing this, they are cheering on and, and, and heralding 
your progress in the faith. By saying, when will you return? Go back and get them. Let's bring this to completion. So we've got this great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us that left us markers and testimony. And we've got this great cloud of witnesses that stands in heaven right now, praising the name of God and begging for Him to return. To set all things right. So, I'm telling you, we have a great cloud around us that encourages us to know where to go, what to do when we get there, and how to walk the path. So he says, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So let's look at both of those instructions. You've got two lettuces there. Two pieces, right? You've got let us lay aside first. Lay aside every weight and sin that so closely clings. Uh, I think probably the more descriptive wording there is used in the King James and the ASB is the sin that so easily entangles. That's probably a better description. Because this is... What he's telling us to do is actively take weight and sin, things that are wicked, and move them aside. So understand, if you believe Jesus is better, if you believe Jesus is better, then what he's telling you is take the things that are not Jesus and lay them aside. This is an active thing that you do. Actively removing things from your life that are sinful. We are to actively take them and move them away. Now, this is sometimes something that we don't want to do. And I propose to you there's two reasons that we don't want to do this. One, we have forgotten the truth that Jesus is better. If Jesus is better, then we don't want the sin. If Jesus is better, then we don't want the sin. We want the sin moved away and set aside. We want it out of the way. So we forget that Jesus is better. And we begin to think that the things of this world are better. And I don't think that it's always malicious or always intentional. I don't think you're you're being confronted by temptation and going... Oh, this is better than Jesus. I don't think that's the case. I think the majority of the time when we're confronted with temptations, Jesus isn't on our radar. We haven't, we haven't thought. Like, we're not, we're not intentionally setting sin in front of us and grabbing at sin and going, this is better. That's not what we're doing. What we're doing instead is we're, we, we've got Jesus over here and we, we're not focusing on him. And so instead, we've got sin here. And by our actions, we're saying, this is better than this. But we're not consciously thinking that. So what do do we have to do? We have to intentionally live with this intentionality, grab the sin and lay it aside. We have to forcibly take it and move it out of the way. Now, people, that looks different for different people. 
For you, it might be that you don't watch a certain TV show. Or that you don't, you don't allow yourself the privilege of access to your phone in certain places. Or you don't allow yourself to talk to certain people in a casual manner. This is, it might, it might look different for each one of us, but the active work here is that we grab what hinders and lay it aside because it easily entangles. If you leave it alone in front of you and let it stay there, it will easily entangle you. So we lay it aside. We take it and we lay it aside. And note, he calls it a weight. He doesn't call it a feather. He doesn't call it dust. He doesn't call it something to be swept out of the way. This is something hard to do. It is not easy. It is not simple to take sin and lay it aside. It is difficult. So, he says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares or entangles us. And then the next part, the next exhortation here at the beginning is let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I love that. It's not, it's not the race that you choose or that you make, but it's the race that is set before you, as in laid out before you. You walk life as God has laid it out. You don't prepare and, and schedule your life and get everything lined up perfectly and then walk the life you laid out. You live the life that is laid out before you. So we see this constantly in the Old Testament, right? Abraham is told to follow God and God says, where do I go? And he says, that way. And so he takes him that way. He leads it that way. And then he says, uh, with David, he gives him, uh, you're going to be king. And then David has to, for years, hide and, and wait until God finally brings it to fruition. David didn't know when he was anointed king that he was going to spend years in a cave, hiding with his mighty men. He didn't know that he was going to have to fight a king and avoid dying. He didn't know that he was going to be developed into this warrior king that was going to be terrifying to all who stood against him. He didn't know. So he, it's laid out before him. He lives the life that gets laid out before him. Same with Elijah. Elijah didn't, when Elijah hears the call of God, he doesn't suddenly realize he's going to have to slay 400 of Baal's false prophets at some point. He doesn't know that. No, he just hears God say, talk and say this. And he talks and he says it. When there's a famine in the land, he doesn't know that the brook of Cherith is going to dry up and the ravens are going to stop bringing food. God tells him to go hang out by this brook and he sits there. He's got, free, he's got water and birds are delivering food to him. That's just a note. The Bible has some really weird stories. This is one of them. Elijah, there's a famine in the land, and he goes and sits by a brook, and ravens are bringing him bread. Like loaves. The Hebrew is pretty clear. Like this is not seeds of wheat that they're dropping as they come. They're bringing him loaves of bread and putting them next to... Weird. True. True. Weird, but true. 
I mean, if, if, a, if a bird brought you some bread today, you'd probably think the bread was diseased and wouldn't touch it. But God provides for Elijah at the brook of Cherith, and he doesn't know that it's going to dry up. And he's told, go to Zarephath. And then he walks to Zarephath, and then he's told to look for a woman who's gathering sticks. He doesn't know what's going to happen. It's laid out before him, and he has to obey. In the same way, you run the race with endurance that's laid out before you. You can't see what's around the corner. You might have some inclination, but you can't see it. And what's going to happen is you're going you're gonna to live this life out on the earth, and you're going to have to walk the path that's laid out before you. You don't know what's going to happen. I can tell you this certainly because six years ago, Five years ago, I had no idea we would be in this room. My plans were very different. And yet, here we are. And I tell you, walking that path is a lot happier than the path I had laid out. A lot more fulfilling than what I had laid out. So we run the race with endurance. And the emphasis there is that you run it With endurance, you keep running. And how do you do this? So he gives us the how next. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So first, your eyes are on Christ. Your eyes are on Him. That's how you run a race. You keep your eyes on the horizon, on the goal. The goal is Jesus. And then he says, the founder and perfecter of our faith. (coughs) This word for founder emphasizes our first archetype. This is the word that emphasizes our first. And the idea here is that he is the first to walk this path. He's the first to walk this path. He's our archetype. He is our example. We talk an awful lot about Jesus being our substitution. We talk a lot about him being our atonement. Sometimes we forget that he is also our example. That we are to be like Christ. And so here he has walked this path ahead of us. He has run the race ahead of us. And indeed, he did it with more weight on him than we could ever imagine. And he did it perfectly. He's our example to follow. Yes, he's our master who ran the race on our behalf. And yes, he's the one that grants us access to the kingdom. He is also our archetype here in this text. We run with endurance because Jesus did it first. And Jesus did it well. And he did it for us. And he's the perfecter of our faith. Meaning that our faith is made complete because he has run it for us. He has done this. He is our founder and perfecter of our faith. That's one. So first we keep our eyes on Jesus. That's one. Second... Like Jesus, we remember this. Who? Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before Jesus is God. Being in the presence of God is the joy that was set before Jesus. I've heard a lot of people argue different things about what that phrase means. The joy set before him. And I have to tell you, the context here, 
points to nothing other than being in the presence of the Almighty God for eternity. He just spent a chapter talking about how the reward is heaven. And all these people look forward to heaven. And Jesus looked forward to perfectly sitting next to God in perfect holy communion in heaven. The joy set before him was perfect communion with God. No sin, nothing in the way. Perfect communion with God. That's the joy set before Jesus. And he achieved that joy by running the race with endurance and despising the cross, or endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God as a result. So how do we run with endurance? One, we remember Jesus did it first and we follow his example. Two, we keep our eyes on the reward. We keep our eyes on the goal, which is communion with God Almighty. Perfect communion with God. Now he gives us another exhortation here in verse 3, say, saying, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. I love that phrase. It's very youth pastor-esque in responding to uh, complaints. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. That's a very poetic way of saying, boy, are you bleeding? Then you're fine. Now shake it off. That's what he's getting at. Shake it off and do your job. Walk. Run the race. Cut it out. Stop fussing. Stop complaining. You run the race. Wipe the blood off and keep going. My, my dad used to, when I would play sports, I would occasionally get hurt. And I was a pansy, just so, so you're aware. I was the type that I would, I would, you know, bend a finger and I, ah! you know, and that was yesterday. Um, and so, just kidding. My dad, I remember distinctly playing this basketball game. And I went over to my dad. Dad, my ear hurts. I've got this ear infection and it's, it's hurting. I can't. My dad said, boy. Take a deep breath and walk it off. So I, you know, okay, okay. Go back out, play a couple more. And I have another second, you know, another second on the side of the court. Dad's front row. And I, Dad, my, my ear hurts. It's, it's bothering me. My ear hurts. Put some dirt on it. Keep moving. Keep walking. Okay, keep going. Keep playing. Get out there. Play. Go play, looking for dirt on a basketball court. Can't find it. And running around, go back again. Dad, Dad, it's just it's hurting, it's hurting. My dad looks at me and says, "Boy, either play the game or sit down." That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you haven't fought sin to the point where you are literally bleeding. But Jesus did. Jesus did. 
Jesus endured hostility on a level that you and I can't imagine. So great was the weight of his war against sin that when he is praying in private by himself, he bleeds. That is someone who wars against sin. So great was the agony of knowing what he was going to face that he sweats drops of blood as he pleads with the Lord if there's any other way for this cup to pass from me. Please let it pass, but not my will but yours be done. So great was the agony that he literally shed blood. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. Jesus did that for you. So rub some dirt on it and get after it. Get to work. Consider Jesus who endured this stuff on your behalf so that you don't grow faint hearted. But that your heart would be encouraged. You've not yet bled in your resistance to sin. Verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. If you are under the discipline of the Lord because of sin, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And listen, I'm not a I'm not a karma type person. It's not how I work. It's not how I think. I don't think like if you do A plus B, the, the checklist will be set and you'll be fine. Like, I, I don't think that way. The Bible does not present God in terms of a checklist God. He doesn't. He's not standing like, oh, you didn't do that today. So, you know, you're not going to get this tomorrow. That's not how this works. No, God is a father, though. He is a father. If you persist in sin, one way or another, he is going to answer you. And he is going to discipline. He's a good father, and his discipline will be done in love and in charity and kindness, but it will be done. And you might, you might deal with some things that are directly from God. And I'm not saying all your struggles come from God, but there might be some that do. Case in point, if you are, I'll just give you a couple if you are's. If you are unable to hear from the Lord when you sit down to study the Word, if you are unable to hear from the Lord, it is highly possible that there is something in your life that's in the way that you have not laid aside. It's highly possible that there's something in your life that you have not laid aside. And he is waiting for you to move it. Because he's eternal and he can outweigh you. And he's patient. Another example might be if there is a lack of ability to connect in the ways that you have known how to connect with God. There's a lack of ability to connect. It's highly possible that there's something you have left in the way that is preventing you from connecting to God. If you have been called to do something by God and have not done it, 
There will be a weight on you until you do it. There have been physical manifestations of this as well. Where people have told me stories and I have experienced times when God has physically made me ill or made them ill or caused some constant uh, pain in their joints or their life until they were willing to surrender something to him. Because our God is a loving father who disciplines and chastises those he loves and he will do it to you if you are his. The greatest fear that any Christian can ever know is if, if they are blatantly sinning and everything goes fine. The greatest fear that any Christian can ever know is if they are blatantly sinning against God they know they are, and everything is going fine. Because, according to Hebrews here, you might not be his child. Which is much more terrifying than the idea of discipline. So, repent, and follow, and obey, and run the race with endurance. With your eyes constantly on Christ, verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, We've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of the spirit of spirits and live? So he, he states here, if you are disciplined, it's a good thing. And then he tells you why you're disciplined. It's for endurance that you're facing these things. Now, uh, first century Jewish uh, brothers and sisters were there being persecuted by the Romans, finding it difficult to find places to worship, and struggling daily to eat bread, struggling to find life. They were struggling for survival, being fed to lions, being persecuted on a massive scale. They were not comfortable. And he, the author of Hebrews, looks at these brothers and sisters, and says, listen, you are being disciplined for the sake of endurance. Difficult things come in life, so you will learn endurance. So you will learn to press through. So you will do it. Remember the story of Abraham. He has to walk a three days journey with his son to sacrifice him on a hill, and he calls it worship. The son whom he loves, his only son. He has to walk three days with this teenager. He's not a child. This teenager who's carrying wood. This guy has to walk for three days with this kid who's probably asking him questions, and we know one of them is, Dad, where's the lamb? We're going to go make sacrifice we don't have a lamb. And then he, Abraham plays with the Hebrew. Plays with the Hebrew language and goes, God provides the lamb. 
And he plays with it. God provides the lamb. And you're not sure if when you read it, if he's saying God will provide a lamb, or buddy, like he's pointing at him. Like, God provides the lamb. You, he provided you. That is intense. God puts Abraham through this for what? For endurance purposes. So Abraham would know what it means to know and follow God. Puts him through this long endurance process because he loves him and he wants him to know him. And you can't know him if you don't go through anything. Oh, find me an old saint and I will show you someone who's been through life and knows what it means to follow God. You don't become an old saint overnight. It takes time and it takes a long walk. But we've been surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that you can point back to. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Then he gives you this example here, and he says, Besides, we've all had fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. How much more, the, the argument is, how much more should you respect God's discipline? How much more should you seek His discipline? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. So you've got two reasons here listed in this text for discipline. One is endurance. That's the first one. And the second one is holiness. That you would share in His holiness. Not that you would be holy. Not that you would make or derive some holiness out of your own righteousness. But that you would share in Jesus' holiness, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who did it perfectly, that you would share in that holiness and that that holiness would be what defines who you are. So the first reason God disciplines us for endurance, that we might run the race well. The second is that we might share in the holiness of Jesus. You are disciplined that you would become more like Jesus Christ. That this world would look at you and say, that person looks like Jesus, acts like Jesus, and lives like Jesus. Finally here in verse 11, he says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we ask the question here, Do we really believe Jesus is better? We asked it at the beginning. I'm going to ask it again. Do we really believe Jesus is better? When we see the opportunity to sin, do we really believe Jesus is better? Because if we really believe Jesus is better, we're going to lay aside that sin. We're going to run the race that's been laid out before us by God. And we're going to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We're going to consider what he went through and stay focused on him. 
We're going to run the race with endurance. We're going to lay aside sin and we're going to consider Jesus. This word, consider. I just want to close with this thought for you. This word, consider. It doesn't, it's, we, we ran across another time when the word is translated, consider Jesus, back in chapter 6, I think. We ran across this word, and we, if you remember, it's, it was keep an eye on. Stay, keep your eyes, consider as in gaze upon him. This is not the same word. This word doesn't mean to keep an eye on, to gaze at, to marvel at. This word means to thoroughly examine and think about. To get every aspect of it nailed down in your head and think hard about it. This is one of those times in Scripture when you should say theology is a good thing. That's what he's getting at here. Think deeply about Christ. Think deeply about Christ. And as we run this race together in community, as we go fast and hard at Christ, as we learn who He is, let us run the race with endurance. Let us throw off or lay aside everything that entangles. And let us thoroughly think about Jesus in all areas.